as I prepared this sermon first, realized um, it was just one I wanted to share with the whole church. So a sermon on the Sabbath. Here's what the Lord says. The fourth commandment, Exodus chapter 20, verse 8. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work. You nor your son nor your daughter nor your male servant, nor your female servant, nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Let us pray together. Dear Lord, uh, as we look together once more at your law, uh, we find your will for your people, your people whom you have redeemed and delivered out of the land of Egypt, figuratively for, our, for us, literally for, each, for Israel. But Lord, our deliverance is even greater, and thus we are bound uh, by a greater covenant to keep your law, uh, the blood shed of Jesus Christ, and the law which is now placed upon our hearts by the ministry of the Holy Spirit. So Father, uh, we ask you that you would open our hearts and give us faith to hear what it is you have to say to the church. In Jesus' name, amen. Here is a command which has to do with time. And admittedly, the fourth commandment uh, is the commandment among the ten that generates the most discussion and debate, uh, primarily amongst Christians. Uh, Obviously, the world doesn't care about the fourth commandment. It doesn't care about the Sabbath, but Christians do. And, And they just want to know what does it mean to keep the Sabbath. It's a question uh, if you know anything about church history that the Christians have been asking from the very beginning. And the answers have been varied. Uh, But many, and I I admit from the beginning of the church age, from the first century, many have imagined that the dawning of a new covenant does away with this command. And so the effect of the command, uh, very practically, or excuse me, the the effect of a new covenant is that we now have nine commands instead of ten. Now, how the new covenant does so with this command and not with the others, the other nine, I could never understand. But that is the assertion that many make. Well, I don't in this sermon intend to be polemical. I don't want to be argumentative. I mean, I don't intend to engage those who make such a claim. All I want to tell you is that I am not one of them. And I want to preach a straightforward sermon on God's command to keep the Sabbath day holy, because that's one of his commandments. That's his will for the church. Of course, we realize and this uh, this perhaps does answer those who make the assertion that a new covenant does away with this commandment. I'm saying it doesn't. But we have to say, surely, that certain adjustments need to be made to this commandment now that a new covenant has dawned. But that's nothing strange. That's something that we find happening already in the old covenant with the giving of the Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments themselves under the the old covenant were presented differently at different occasions. Because... In the giving of the Ten Commandments, they took into account different realities. When God gave the the commandments at Sinai, it was a little different than when he later gave it uh, uh, at the the threshold of the land in Deuteronomy chapter 5. And so if you look at this commandment in particular, the fourth commandment in Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy chapter 5, you'll notice it's stated a little bit differently. I want you to remember creation, God says, at Sinai. But then later on, he says, I want you to remember the Exodus. So God adjusts the presentation of the commandment in different settings. But the command itself remains. Another commandment like this is the fifth commandment. The fifth commandment is, we'll look at this tonight, 
Honor your father and mother that your days may be long in the land which the Lord your God is giving you. Well, that's an uh, irrelevant category in the new covenant, the land. And so when Paul presents the fifth commandment in Exodus chapter six, he says that your days may be light, that your uh, days may be long in the earth. It's presented more generally and broadly. It's the same commandment, but adjustments which take into account, again, the new realities in which God's people find themselves. And so that's how I propose to deal with the fourth commandment, not by doing away with it, but by recognizing there are new realities and therefore certain adjustments which we find in the New Testament and in the church. But let's look at the commandments itself. This command, as with the others, we are seeking to answer two basic questions as we find in the shorter catechism. What is God commanding and what is God forbidding? He's doing each and each commandment. But we notice something new here in the fourth commandment that we also notice in the fifth and only in those. And that is that they're stated positively. God is in the other eight prohibiting. And then we have to ask the question, well, what is he commanding? But here he's commanding positively. And then we'll ask the question implicitly, what is he forbidding? And so eight are prohibitions, but the fourth and the fifth are positive commands. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. You see, that's a positive command. We also notice in the command, but also implicitly, that he's prohibiting certain things. On the Sabbath day, you shall not labor. But I think it's important before we actually consider what God is requiring, what he's prohibiting, to actually begin with the third question that the Shorter Catechism answers, and that that is what is the reason annexed to it. Ordinarily, that's the last thing we consider. You have the command, you have the prohibition, and then you have the reason that God assigns for doing both. But I want to begin here with the reason he assigns, and that will then tell us why and how we are to keep it. Verse 11. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. There the reason is assigned for our Sabbath keeping in the other verses. The reason assigned is found in the fact we see That after God made the world in six days, he rested on the seventh day. That calls into mind the account which we have in Genesis chapter 1, the creation week, days 1 through 6, and then the Sabbath day, the seventh day, verses 1 through 3 of chapter 2. In fact, it quotes those verses in the command. What we have in Genesis 2, verses 1 through 3, or what is said here in verse 11 of the fourth commandment, is a picture of God completing his labors of creating and then entering into his Sabbath rest. And then having done that, he hallows the Sabbath day in order that we might keep it as well. And so there's really two things being said. The first is God's Sabbath and then ours. But you see, his Sabbath keeping is the basis and the pattern of ours. You don't begin with man's Sabbath, you begin with God's. And so I think we have to ask first what this Sabbath rest involves for God before we ever try to understand what it's supposed to mean for us, what it means for us to keep the Sabbath. Well, what does it mean for God to keep the Sabbath since he has now entered into and enjoying his Sabbath day? Well, I think we have to immediately recognize that it does not involve, when we speak of God's resting, a total cessation of all labor. God is resting. He's been resting ever since the end of the creation week. But in his rest, he isn't doing nothing. 
The life of God in heaven is not a life of the absence of any activity at all. To suggest this about God is obviously uh, absurd. I think we would all agree about that. And yet the reason I point it out uh, or, or I put it like that is because the Pharisees, it seems, appear to have thought this when they faulted Jesus for healing on the Sabbath. In fact, they always faulted him for this. But on one occasion in John chapter five, again, they're faulting him for laboring on the Sabbath. What are you doing? And Jesus, uh, to, to their claim, famously says this, which is a picture uh, for us of what God's Sabbath involves. He says, my father has been working until now and I've been working until now. What is he referring to? Well, he's referring to uh, the point in time at which he began or entered his Sabbath rest. He has been working ever since that point, Jesus is saying, and I've been working, too. It's a very informative statement. We ought to examine it a little bit as we try to understand what it means for God to rest and God to keep the Sabbath. At first, for Jesus to say, my father has been working, appears to present a contradiction. Because we are told in Genesis that God has entered his Sabbath rest, which tells us that he is resting presently and he's been resting ever since then. But there's really no contradiction at all. What God's rest involves, Jesus tells us, is not the total absence of any activity, but rather, as John Murray says in his book, Principles of Conduct, activity of a different kind. His rest involves a resting from the work of creation. But it would be absurd to suggest that God ceases now to do anything now that he's entered his Sabbath rest. No, he still labors. He just doesn't create that work is finished. And now he's taken up the work of looking after his creation and enjoying it. Forever he will rest from the work of creation. But again, as he rests, he looks after and he enjoys. And it was in this sense that Jesus said what he did. My father labors until now and I labor. Of course, you see, this means that the son, too, has always been working and that there was no violation of the Sabbath principle for him to, to perform works of healing on the Sabbath. And so the first point is this. Looking at the Sabbath from the standpoint of God's own enjoyment and observance of it, God is at rest, but he's also working. The ideas are not at odds. It's just work of a different kind. Some work is fitting on the Sabbath. Other kinds of work are not. Here's the actual quote from John Murray. I just referred to it earlier, but let me give it to you now. He says the Sabbath command is not defined in terms of cessation from activity, but cessation from that kind of activity involved in the labors of the other six days. What God was doing on the first six days, he ceased doing once he entered his rest and he'll never take up that work again. This is something we'll come back to, but understanding the difference is at the heart of the command. What works are permitted, what works are forbidden. Otherwise, we'll end up like the Pharisees, thinking that if we do anything at all on the Sabbath, we are automatically breaking it. But the next thing we need to see about God's Sabbath, again, beginning with his Sabbath as a starting point, is that he offers it to his people. That spiritual rest, Calvin says, which knows no end. Talking about the life of heaven. God offered it first to Adam in the garden. If Adam had fulfilled the terms of probation, he would have entered God's rest. Which means he would have joined God in heaven, resting along with him from his labors. 
The same promise we know from Psalm 95 and from Hebrews 3 and 4 was offered to Israel in the wilderness. But they failed to enter it because of unbelief. The land which they were seeking to enter into was presented them as a type and a shadow of the heavenly rest of heaven. But by failing to enter that land through unbelief and sin, they also failed to enter into the heavenly Canaan. I swore in my wrath, God says, Psalm 95 verse 11, they will not enter my rest. And he wasn't speaking about the land. He was talking about heavenly life, entering into his rest, which was offered to them, but they failed to enter into. They fell away because of sin and unbelief. They were apostate. Now, all of this is unfolded for us in Hebrews 3 and 4. I read some of that earlier on. The point of the passage, if you want to go back and listen to that sermon, you can. I'm not going to unfold that passage very much in this sermon. The point of that passage, especially when it speaks of the Sabbath rest remaining, verse 1, verses 9 through 11, is that the promise of entering that rest, as for Israel, for us, is still unrealized. It is still the goal which uh, the church is seeking and pursuing. We are still seeking, as Israel was in the wilderness, and as Adam was in the garden, to enter our Sabbath rest in the ultimate sense. And it's only by persevering in faith, as Hebrews tells us, that we can ever hope to do so. Again, to enter his rest, to join God in resting from our labors in heaven. To join God in heaven where he is resting and where he is inviting, inviting us to join him. That's the goal of the Christian life. It always has been. So all of this tells us that the basis of the Sabbath command is the eternal Sabbath, which God is presently enjoying and which he has been enjoying ever since the beginning of the world. And which he sets forth to his people as the goal of their existence. I think that's the crucial point for us to understand, to join him. Something that they too might enter, provided they do not fall away in sin and unbelief. Again, the whole book, the whole exhortation in the book of Hebrews comes to mind as I speak in that way. And you understand why in chapters 3 and 4 he brings in the idea of Sabbath. But this brings us next to the weekly pattern of Sabbaths that we find in the fourth commandment. I've been speaking of God's eternal Sabbath, but now... Let us look at the weekly pattern. Each week contains this rhythm and cycle. Six days of labor, one day of rest, which we call Sabbath. You notice uh, in the commandment, uh, you notice this in the commandment, the pattern of our living, which is just us following the pattern which God laid down at the beginning. We're imitating our creator. But we notice that God, there's a difference. God observed it. Only once we observe it again and again. And so in our imitation, there is this difference. But the reason for this difference is something we've already considered. It's what I was just saying. It's that the Sabbath rest remains for us an unrealized reality. Again, go back to Hebrews 4 and you'll see this. We've yet to enter it. And until we get there, until we join God in heaven, it remains for us to observe this weekly pattern so long as the promise itself remains of entering his rest. And then our weekly observance of the Sabbath becomes a regular token and pledge of our hope to enjoy the Sabbath rest of heaven. In other words, those who keep the Sabbath now in their weeks are those who pledge to God their hope. To enter into his rest in heaven at the end of their days. Well, notice how the, the pattern is present 
in the command. He says, six days you shall labor. And did you notice that that also is a command? Six days you shall labor. It's equally a command to work. But then he says, the Sabbath belongs to God. It's something he demands of us. He wants us to keep it, to hallow it, to recognize that in creating us, he structured our lives in this way. And again, in this way, by our weekly Sabbaths, he constantly sets before his people the goal of our existence, which again is that we might enter his rest along with him. But what does this involve, the keeping of our regular Sabbaths as we look forward to the eternal Sabbath? Well, the first thing God says to do is to remember. Well, is there anything, beloved, we're more likely to forget than this? To keep the Sabbath? Man is so busy. His, the, his time is the thing he's no time to lose. His weeks are ever getting away from him. He's always striving, never resting. Oh, and is it Sunday already? Perhaps I may not make it this week. Against this tendency, God says, remember. We also have a strong proof in this word, remember, of the antiquity of the Sabbath. That it did not originate at Sinai, nor with Moses but that the people, as we've already seen, were told to keep it in the wilderness in connection with the bread. Exodus 16, they were already keeping it. Yes, they were to remember it. Remember its first institution at the beginning of the world. Remember its purpose. Remember to keep it weekly. But also, as Hughes Oliphant Old says in his book on worship, the word remember carries with it the connotation of something like this. Hold a service of memorial on the Sabbath. To remember the Sabbath, uh, to use the language of Deuteronomy chapter 5 verse 12, is to keep it or to observe it. Hold a service of memorial on the Sabbath. Keep a regular memorial on this day. A day of religious service and worship. A day of remembrance when we remember and celebrate God's mighty acts of creation and redemption. The next thing he says is to keep it holy, which is to me the real heart of the Sabbath command. What it is to keep the Sabbath is to keep it holy. Every time I ask someone, and I've never had anyone in my life. Now, I'm talking about people outside this church, but I've asked countless people. Do you know what God is asking us to do on the Sabbath? What's the fourth commandment? I've never had anyone answer the question. They say, well, we're supposed to keep the Sabbath, I think. Well, how does he tell us to do it? To keep it holy. I've never had anyone answer that question correctly. But as I say, it's the real heart of the Sabbath command. Keep it holy. God is saying that the Sabbath is something special to him. And it ought to be special to us. Like his name, which we ask him to hallow in the first petition of the Lord's Prayer. Well, it's the same thing with the Sabbath. Keep it holy, God says. Keep it holy by remembering it. Keep it holy by observing it. By acknowledging that the Sabbath belongs to God and that he is the Lord of days. It is the Sabbath of the Lord, your God, he says in verse nine. And all of the world and all of time belongs to him and he's the Lord of our lives. Yes, and hallow it, he says. By ceasing from your labors in it, you shall do no work. Observe a holy day of rest to the Lord. Well, what does that look like? What does it what does he mean when he says you shall do no work? I think it, it's quite clear that he means not that we're doing nothing on the Sabbath, 
that we are meant to sit in a room and stare at the ceiling all day long. For that would be to misconceive of what it means for God to rest, as we've seen. But rather it means to cease from every labor that would keep you from keeping the Sabbath. From those ordinary labors that you're busy doing on the other six days. On the Sabbath, don't do those. If you have a regular job, you're not supposed to do that job on the Sabbath. If you're a student, then God already gave you six days to study. Put away your books on Sabbath. You get the idea. But then, of course, we all want to know what about this profession and that activity. Well, let's try not to be Pharisees about this. Of course, we recognize some labor is fitting on the Sabbath, that certain activities are unavoidable and even necessary. We call those works of necessity and mercy. We understand that not every kind of work is prohibited on the Sabbath. If something is necessary for life, and especially if some labor is necessary for Sabbath keeping, then obviously there's no sin in doing these things. People sometimes ask me, when do you keep your Sabbath, Pastor? And they think I'm going to say Monday, but they're wrong. I always tell them on Sundays. That's when I keep my Sabbath. But that's your busiest day. Well, it was Jesus too. He did most of his work on the Sabbath. Go back and read the Gospels and you'll see this. And again, you'll see the Pharisees constantly faulting him for this. He wasn't breaking the Sabbath. He was keeping it. Once you realize that some works are fitting and in keeping with the Sabbath, there's no trouble over this idea. Also, doctors and other professions like that, it isn't wrong to keep people alive on Sunday. If you have a man who's dying on Sunday, you don't have to wait till Monday to take him to the doctor. It's fitting. There's no better day to show mercy and promote life than the Sabbath. But perhaps we could say, I don't think we're being Pharisees in saying this, an elective surgery would be better done on other days. It isn't necessary. You notice I'm not trying to be too rigid here. And I'm certainly not giving you a list of rules to follow, but I am trying to help you to see the spirit of the Sabbath. It really is a great blessing to man. It was given to him for his benefit and well-being to preserve life. In fact, in many ways, man's resting is more important than his laboring because by his rest, he, he anticipates the life of heaven. He is indicating to God and to man that he understands the reason he was made. He was made not to labor always, but only for a time. But he was made to rest with God forever in eternity. It's in this sense that Jesus says man wasn't made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath for man. Not as though to say, this is the popular interpretation, man might make of the Sabbath anything he pleases. God gave it to man, so do with it what you like. That isn't what Jesus meant. What he meant was something like this, that man, in understanding the true principle of the Sabbath, will understand the purpose of rest. That rest was something by which God was seeking to bless him. But the man who never rests, who always works, the workaholic we call him, and there is something of an admiration that Americans have for the workaholic. This is the man who really doesn't understand God. He doesn't understand what God is doing now, nor does he understand why uh, God made man 
and why God placed man upon the earth. His ethics, if you will, are too man-centered. He's forgotten about God, his whole relationship to God. His ethics ignore the fact that God has now entered his Sabbath rest and that man in this world was meant to resemble God. And that is the spirit of true Christian ethics, resembling our creator, not making of life whatever we please. But let me also say something here about worship. When God says, do not do those labors that fill up the other six days, but hallow this day, he's obviously pointing to this day as something special. A day which is meant for him, a Sabbath to the Lord your God. Here is a day, in other words, to worship the Lord. Here is a day which is free from the business and the distractions of the other six days. Why? So that we might be free to worship God. And such is the way Christians have always understood it. That's why they met on Sundays. It was in order to do these things, to engage in God's worship, as we see in Acts chapter 2, to devote themselves to the apostles' teaching, the breaking of bread and prayer. The truth is, and I know you all know this, the other six days are so busy, it's hard to find time to stop and to rest and to worship. I'll confess to you that I find it difficult to maintain the practice of five minutes of family worship each day. That's the truth. It's also embarrassing to admit. But we're all so busy. We're so busy the other six days. Oh, but Sunday is a day where there's no such distractions. We set them aside. We rest from them. It's a day we can devote fully to this purpose. Do you know that the Puritans referred to Sunday as the market day of the soul? Six days you look after the body. But one day in seven you look after the soul. And if you don't, well, I think you know what will happen. I've talked to countless people who've told me that. In periods where they stopped going to church, their spiritual life simply withered away. You have to look after the inner man too, beloved, not just the outer man. You can't just labor for that which perishes. You've got to make time for God. Or as others have said, you have to take time to be holy. So the Sabbath is a day of worship. And yes, it is a day And not an hour, the whole day. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. But do you notice another thing? And that is that God blessed the Sabbath day. He didn't just hallow it, but he blessed it. Which is also, I think, highly noteworthy. One of the things that I've noticed and that I've shared with many of you uh, over the year over the years, is that Sunday is the best day. It's one of the happiest discoveries of the Christian life. I know it's the busiest day for me. It's the busiest day for many of you. It's a tiring day in many ways, but it is definitely the best day. There's no other day like it. It is without question my favorite day. And do you know why that is? It's because God blessed it. He is the one who made it the best day. But there's something else that I've realized over the years, and that is the fact that the world has also realized this. The world used to let Christians have the Sabbath, and even if the world wasn't Christian, it still allowed us to have it. But suddenly they realized that they were missing out on what we were enjoying. And in their worldliness, they began to claim the Sabbath for themselves. And now what we find is that they too have placed all of their favorite things on Sunday as well. Well, that's because they've now realized what we knew all along. And again, that that is that Sunday is the best day. 
It's a day of blessing, a day of refreshing and happiness. It's a blessing to man from God, whether they realize it or not. Of course, this creates certain conflicts now that the world has realized what we have realized. The world no longer allows us to keep the Sabbath, does it? Too often we have to choose between going to church and some other activity that we might otherwise enjoy. And that could just as easily have been done on the other six days. But the world won't allow you to make that choice anymore. But I hope there's really no dilemma here. Not for Christian people. What fools we are if, like Esau, we sell our birthright for a pot of stew. Stop doing what the world is doing on Sundays. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. It is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. It is a day of blessing, refreshment, and happiness for Christian people. But I think there's really one pressing question that must be answered. If I didn't answer it here, you'd all be asking me it, unless you already knew the answer. And that is, doesn't he say Saturday here, the seventh day? And all along I've been saying Sunday, haven't I? Well, the question is, why Sunday and not Saturday? Again, there's no denying that in the language of the Old Testament, the Sabbath was always Saturday, the seventh day. And yet the curious thing that we notice in the New Testament is that Christians were always worshiping on Sunday. These men who, by the way, were all Jews. And yet look at them worshiping on Sunday from the very beginning. Once Jesus was raised on that first Sunday. Now, that is surely noteworthy and it was not accidental. There was very good reason for this and we ought to examine that. What they understood, as we now put it, is that Sunday became the Christian Sabbath. And the question we have is, can the day really change without violating the principle of the Sabbath? Can you really do that? Can you preserve the fourth commandment and change the day? Well, this is where the prior point I made comes in. That is, redemptive history proceeds. God makes certain changes and adjustments to his law. We've already noticed a couple, the way the language of the land falls out of the fifth commandment. Or the way the presentation of the fourth commandment changes in different settings, even under the old covenant. But what we notice each time about the changes is that they do no violence to the fundamental nature of the commandment. They merely take into account the new situation in which God's people find themselves. And then in that setting, God says, this is how I want you to keep my command. And so look at that first Sunday, the dawning of a new era. The day Jesus was raised. What can we say about it? Well, I think we all instinctively realize, as those first Christians did, that by being raised on the first day, Jesus hallowed and blessed that day. And that he now, as the resurrected God-man and our mediator, has entered into his Sabbath rest. Again, I make the distinction as the God-man. He has now ceased from his labors. That of atonement. He has finished his work. He has entered his Sabbath rest. And now he is inviting his church to join him in enjoying his Sabbath rest as the God man, our great high priest in heaven. And so we should have no difficulty understanding this change in practice from Saturday to Sunday when we look at it from that viewpoint. And yet you notice nothing I've said in the sermon is violated one way. You can go back and listen to it. Find a single thing I said that is overturned in the changing of the day. The whole idea of Sabbath rest is preserved and maintained, even if you change the day. The only thing that changes, in fact, is the day and the reason. 
And so when we see Jesus meeting with the disciples on that first Sunday, and then again John tells us eight days later, which according to the Jewish counting was the next Sunday, he begins this new custom and habit. There and then the church began to worship on Sundays, a practice the church has never forsaken. And ask yourself, how else did she ever come into this, these first Christians being Jews themselves, if not on the authority of her Lord himself? He who is the Lord of the Sabbath. Obviously, he has the authority to make this change, even as he rightfully claims the Sabbath for himself as its Lord. Following this, we see the next great decisive event in the life of the early church is what? Pentecost. And when did that happen? Well, it happened on Sunday. It's also clear once you put it together what God was indicating to the early church and what they understood. Sunday was now the Christian Sabbath. Of course, there are certain implications to this idea that we must appreciate. Four implications, and I'll close with these practical points of application. So long as we all agree that we ought to keep the fourth commandment. One is that from the earliest days of the church, there was only one holy day, and that was Sunday. You read of no other days in the New Testament, none whatsoever. There was only the Lord's Day, Sunday, the day our Lord was raised. That is when Christians met. That is when they worshipped. That was the day they observed. The presence of feast days and holy days, things like Christmas, Easter, and so many other uh, things that you find on the church calendar. In addition to Sunday, came much later, historically. The earliest date is the 4th century, and many of them came much, much later than that. And what happened, again, historically, as a result of this, as Hughes Oliphant Old notices in his book on worship, is that they tended to obscure the celebration of the Lord's Day. In other words, what happened was the feast days, the holy days, which man made, began to take the place and the priority in the Christian life that the Lord's Day once assumed. Which is why at the time of the Reformation, and then to an even greater degree during uh, the period of the Puritans in England, They did away with all of the feast days, every single one of them. And they began once more to place the priority solely on the Lord's Day. If you read the Westminster Assembly's directory on worship, you'll find this to be the case. And the reason was because only the Lord's Day had the warrant of Scripture. And only the Lord's Day, as a day for Christians to observe, could be underscored with the words, Thus saith the Lord. And by reinstating the centrality of this, they also broke away from all the medieval perversions of Roman Catholicism and began once more to resemble the purity of the early church. And so I'm saying place the priority, the sole priority on the Lord's Day and get rid of the other days. They're all man-made. They all came much later. Another implication is that Jesus, being the Lord of the Sabbath, as he says in Luke chapter 6, is best worshipped on this day. It belongs to him. Let us realize this. On this day, we remember him. Remember, I said it's a day of memorial, a day of remembrance. Do you remember what Jesus says in the Lord's Supper, the institution of the Lord's Supper, which we'll do in just just a moment. Do this in remembrance of me. Remember me as you come together at the table. And so it is especially fitting on this of all days to observe the Lord's Supper. We observe the Sabbath in order to keep this and other rites, which remind us of Jesus. And so the whole day is devoted to the same kinds of things, all the things by which we remember him. Another implication is that we must here of all days avoid the tendency of legalism 
that was so prevalent among the Jews. Nowhere was their tendency towards legalism more prevalent than in their keeping of the Sabbath. And nowhere, I think you would agree, is it more prevalent today than with respect to this commandment. The question is, how are we to avoid it? Well, the oddest answer in the world is often given. The way to avoid the legalism of the Sabbath is to break it. For the life of me, I've never understood such logic. And yet that seems to be where many Christians are. The only way to avoid the legalism of the Sabbath is not to keep it at all. No, the way to avoid the legalism with respect legalism on the Sabbath is by seeking to keep it in the way that Jesus and the disciples did in the New Testament. Here is a day we discover of mercy. It's a day to remember all that the Lord has done. A day to keep a memorial and to devote ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to prayer and to breaking and bread. It really isn't complicated, beloved. Devote yourselves to these simple things and you'll avoid the legalism of the Pharisees. And I promise you this, along with Robert Murray McShane in his little treatise, I Love the Lord's Day. You will never be holy unless you keep the Lord's Day. But the, the, the final implication And this is really something which perhaps isn't an implication at all because we find it in the command. Is that keeping the Sabbath involves helping others to keep it. It's present in the command. He says he doesn't just say you keep the Sabbath, but do not lay any burdens on even your servants. We also get a sense of this in Hebrews chapter 10 verses 24 and 25 when he says don't forsake uh, the, the assembling of the brothers In order that you might stimulate your brother to love and good deeds. We gather not just for our own benefit, but for the benefit of our brother. In other words, we aren't just concerned to keep the Sabbath ourselves. This of all days, he says, Hebrews chapter 10 is a day to think of your brother and his need for encouragement and spiritual rest. To the same end, going back to Exodus The Lord in the fourth commandment forbids that we should lay heavy burdens on others on the Sabbath by which we prevent them from enjoying the same blessings we hope to enjoy ourselves. Think of going out to eat. I'm stepping on toes here, but I'm doing so intentionally. Think of going out to eat after the service. What are you doing? You're freeing yourself of the burden of cooking and placing it on another. And so you keep the Sabbath by breaking it. Read the fourth commandment and tell me if I'm wrong. The way to keep the Sabbath is to have a concern for others to keep it, not just yourself, just as the reason you come to church is for your brother and not just for yourself. Remember to think of others. But you see, in all of this, I'm trying to be practical, to give you a little guidance, to help you to keep the Sabbath. I want people to know, if I'm to speak from the heart a little bit here, I want people to know this congregation and this people as the people who keep the Sabbath who remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy because it belongs to God. Not because I love the Puritans, but because I love the Lord and I love his word and I love you all. My people know that we are those who keep the Sabbath, not just by our words, but by our lives. Those who are able to say with Robert Murray McShane, I love the Lord's day. It's the best day. It's my favorite day. And I want you to know the blessings of it as well. And if the whole world, it seems, has forgotten this special day, let it be clear that we as Christian people have not. Amen. And let us come now to the table together.